0: good morning and welcome to monday mornings
1: with maddie and morgan i'm maddie and i'm morgan welcome back
0: everybody we're back bitches <laughs> <laughs>
1: did all our traveling and had a lovely break <laughs> we're feeling good we're feeling ready we're gonna have oh. some uh long ass episodes to start you off Oh, this is
0: for sure. Um and they're gonna be like multi parters as
1: <laughs> as oh, well. <laughs> There's no problem. With
0: that.
1: I feel like welcome. I don't know. Everybody's different, but personally I like long episodes. Oh, um, same. When I'm listening to like other podcasts, they always apologize. I'm like, no, I like it.
0: <laughs> I like long episodes, especially because if I like am driving anywhere long, I don't
1: wanna have to change my podcast when one ends. Right. And well so my workday consists of a lot of driving by myself so yeah that's what I do all day is listen to podcasts yeah so I love a long episode or like if I go shopping grocery shopping or thrift shopping or whatever oh yeah. I am an introvert so I like to put in my headphones (laughs) true
0: same I'm not even an introvert I just like to put them in because I don't like when people talk to me in stores (laughs) no I don't need your help thank you (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm just browsing and I'm gonna buy one random item, I promise.
1: <laughs> so if you guys remember, we announced on our Halloween episode that we're kinda shifting gears. And gonna switch to mostly creepy things because we know you like that and that's what we like too. So yeah. Yeah. And it expands so deep, not just uh spooky like
0: Halloween type things. Uh as you may remember, this week we are going to be talking about the one and only, the terrible Whitey Bulger. Yee! And it might, it's definitely going to be multi-parter, we just don't know how many parts yet. So. Yeah, it's going to yeah. be two or three, depends on how great I am at condensing information.
1: <laughs> and after that we're going to talk about Alcatraz, because I did go to Alcatraz when I was in San Francisco. And that also has ties to Whitey Bulger, so we, we get to yeah. build a puzzle.
0: <laughs> There's way too much that Whitey Bulger involved his stupid ass in that we might just have so many episodes that come off of him alone.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's okay. But yeah. What's new? You started a new job.
0: Congratulations. I started a new job. I work in Boston now, which is... Uh, Ideal. It's nice. It's nice to be in the city. Um, I'm a major outdoor person, but I'm also a huge city girl when it comes down to it. Not so much New York City. I did go to New York City a few weeks ago to visit my lovely friend Val, and it was very fun. Nice. But I uh, determined that I will never live there. <laughs> oh, but I would die. Yeah. I, no, you couldn't. No. <laughs>
1: Even after what three or four days in San Francisco, I was like, "All right, this is fun, but that was enough." Yeah, it's just (laughs) get back to quiet. I don't know. Boston's not quiet, and it's not super
0: clean, but it's cleaner and quieter than New York City was. So
1: (laughs) I just by the end, like everything was smelled bad, and I was like, "Yeah, like just like on the street that just smells like trash."
0: Yeah, it just smells like trash and pee, and there's so many things going on, it's very overstimulating. Alright,
1: so, yeah. let <laughs> do it. <laughs> <But> anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: so enough. Anyways, that. moving on, because this will probably be a long one. So, as I mentioned in our last Halloween episode, this week I will be covering the life and crimes of one whitey boulder. Also, as I mentioned, it's going to actually be at least a two-parter since there's just so much shit to cover and it's all so wacky I didn't want to exclude anything. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So here we go. Um, I have told Morgan that I have given her a list of key players that are going to come up throughout the story. I can make this prettier and we can probably post it on our instagram page too so that you guys can look at it and also not be confused because (sighs) underground boston crime life there's a lot of people it happens over a lot of decades and yeah the names lots of very italian and irish names that get thrown around here indeed so here we go yay i'm so excited on september 3rd 1929 James Joseph Bulger Jr. was born to James Bulger Sr. and Jane Jean McCarthy. James was originally from Canada and Jean was from Ireland. They married and moved to Everett, Massachusetts together where James Whitey Bulger was born. Um, Everett, for those of you who do not know, which most of you probably do because you're from New England, is a little bit north of Boston. Yep. James Jr. was the oldest of the three Bulger boys. The younger two were William or Billy and John. Uh, Billy actually ends up being a bit of a player later in our story, not in crime, but he ends up becoming a lawyer and getting involved with Massachusetts state politics. Fun. So... Senior was a union laborer and occasionally worked on the docks. He ended up losing his arm in a work accident and made it, which would make it increasingly hard for him to get work. Uh, yeah, that checks out. If he's doing like manual labor, yeah, he was doing manual labor and then I'm pretty positive lost his arm in a work accident. And I'm this is in the '30s, so this is a uh, before like workman's comp. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, they said, sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah, they were like, ooh, sorry, you just can't work anymore. The family ended up in poverty, and in 1938, they moved to the Mary Ellen McCormick Housing Project in South Boston, also known as Southie. which today we are recording on a Sunday. So I can imagine that everybody I went to high school with is currently at brunch in Southie for Southie Sunday. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't know that was because... a thing.
0: Oh, yeah, selfie Sundays and brunch in Southie is a thing. Oh. We're going to hear a lot about how terrible selfie was, and it's been pretty gentrified since. Oh, yeah, for sure. Time. Last time
1: I was in selfie, I was like, this is different than what I remember.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, because even growing up, it was like, ooh, selfie is not a great place. And then after college, I had so many friends move to Southie, and I was like,
1: what? <laughs> What's up?" book about whitey bulger black mass is there another one
0: yeah there's multiple black mass is one that they made into a movie i did also while i was typing my notes last night i was watching the departed which is loosely based on whitey
1: isn't the town too
0: the town is and black mass and i don't think he was involved in mystic river but I, I,
1: think I think I was thinking of um, All Souls.
0: Uh, yeah. There's a lot of them.
1: Yeah.
0: So they moved into the projects of South Boston. The younger Bulger boys excelled at school, but Whitey preferred the streets. The nickname Whitey came from his stark white blonde hair. He preferred to go by Jimmy or Jim. But law enforcement got Whitey to stick. He also (laughs) really liked the nickname Boots, apparently, which he
1: got for wearing cowboy boots, which he would hide his switchblade in. Okay, I just picture him being called Whitey for so long. He was like, I'm freaking sick of this nickname. I'm going to... I'm gonna get them to start calling me something else. And then he just started wearing cowboy boots everywhere in the hopes that people would start calling him boots.
0: It just makes me think that he's wearing the red cowboy boots from How I Met Your Mother. That's
1: also what I was picturing. <laughs> just with a switchblade in them.
0: But no, we're not letting him have any cute nicknames or go by any
1: names that he actually yeah, it sounds like. like a baby.
0: <laughs> or yeah. like a cat. He was like 10 at the time. He was a child when this nickname started to stick. Um, But no cute nicknames for him in honor of how much this guy sucks. We will be calling him Whitey, Bulger, and in some quotes, Jimmy. But since he hated the name Whitey, gonna stick to that one the most.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: By the age of 14, he was in a small Irish youth gang called the Shamrocks.
1: Creative. (laughs) <laughs> right? sounds like a like a hockey team or like a soccer team <laughs>
0: <laughs> the Celtics <laughs> uh, this was also the age when he had his first run with the law so in 1943 at the age of 14 Whitey was arrested and charged with larceny and eventually assault forgery and armed robbery
1: classic
0: For this, he spent some time in a juvenile center, and in 1948, he joined the Air Force, where he ended up spending some time in military prison for various assaults. And he was also arrested by Air Force police in 1950 for going AWOL. But don't worry, he was honorably discharged in 1952. Like... How do you go AWOL and end up in military prison and still get honorably discharged?
1: That makes no sense to me.
0: Like, they just didn't care. (laughs) But anyways, they sent him back to Boston. In 1956, Whitey serves his first time in an Atlanta federal penitentiary. This is also still him pre-murdering people that we know of. So this arrest was for armed robbery of a bank and hijacking a truck. While Whitey was in prison in Atlanta, he was asked to join a research study. This study was supposedly to help find a cure for schizophrenia in exchange for a shorter sentence. The world would later find out that this was not actually a research study, but a CIA experiment known as MKUltra.
1: No freaking way, I had no idea oh yeah oh my god (laughs) my mind is blown already we just started (laughs) for those
0: of you who don't know what mk ultra is we'll do an episode on it for sure oh yeah that's what i meant is we will need to do an episode on mk ultra because it did actually happen it seems like a conspiracy theory but it was real (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) that's how you know it's fucked up
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that was when the United States funded the CIA's use of LSD, acid, and other drugs to study mind-control drug research. And as I said, there are actual CIA documents that legitimize these claims, and this shit actually happened. So, over a period of about 18 months, Whitey was, like, literally injected with high concentrations of LSD... I think, like, once a week, and he ended up getting about $3 per injection, and I think it was about, like, 50-something days taken off of his sentence.
1: my God. Not worth it.
0: (laughs) No. So, he claims that he was recruited under false pretenses, which is true. I do agree with that. It's super uncool to be like, we're gonna cure schizophrenia, you're gonna make some money, and you're gonna get time off your sentence, and then just
1: inject people with LSD? Like, that is obscene. And to clarify, there still is no cure for schizophrenia, so... No. It, it didn't that's... work. And also, you can't use
0: LSD to control people's minds. Like... There's a
1: lot of ethic issues obviously
0: yeah and logic issues but (laughs) indeed so this exposure to this concentration amount and length of acid really fucked him up during these experiments he kept like notebooks and journals documenting it he wrote about hearing voices and how time this time was nightmarish nightmarish it nightmarish Yes, nightmarish.
1: <laughs> I knew what you
0: meant. <laughs> and took him to, quote, depths of insanity. This would affect him for the rest of his life, causing night terrors and insomnia.
1: That checks out. I'd be interested to read those journals. Oh, same. They're definitely a bit wacky. Oh, for
0: sure. So, after his LSD shit in 1959 whitey was transferred to alcatraz ever heard of it
1: dun, 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 the rock
0: the rock yeah i was listening to a podcast called kingpins and they have a two-part series on whitey which i really like It's very interesting they do a very very good job about his background but they don't go a ton into like his actual crimes and I didn't feel comfortable not talking about people he murdered just because being from the area. I feel like you should cover it, do a service right. to people who were victim of
1: him. Like right. I feel like that kind of like like skimming over the horrific things that he did kind of like neutralizes him instead of depicting him as an evil person, which he obviously was. Yeah,
0: and I think the whole point of the podcast is just talk about like Mob and like group leaders of stuff like that, so they do a whole bunch of it, but it's true, gotcha. it's interesting, and obviously, like, I don't know, you can't even feel that sympathetic for him. Like, yeah, his like he grew up in poverty, and like his dad was slightly abusive, but that doesn't mean that you should, it doesn't count. <laughs> the most thing I feel bad about is the whole LSD, uh, MK Ultra shit, but that's just because that's like
1: super not okay. People have been through worse than not murdered people. So. Yeah. So. Sympathy here.
0: <laughs> he spent a very short time at Alcatraz, um, but what? that's, sorry, that sentence doesn't make any sense. He spent a short time there Um, and ended up going, spending some time at Leavenworth and then was finally relocated to Lewisburg in Pennsylvania in 1963. His brother, Billy, who is now a lawyer after graduating from Boston College Law School, actually helped him out in getting relocated to Lewisburg because it is closer to Boston. And he was there for about two years and finally at his third parole hearing in 1965, Bolger was granted parole after serving nine years, which he was supposed to serve 20 years for his armed robbery and all that. But again, his brother was a lawyer in Boston and was able to help him out.
1: How convenient. Uh, I
0: know. So nice, right? So after his release, he wouldn't be arrested again for 65
1: years. Yeah, I remember, I mean, I I know you're going to, I'll leave it for when we talk about 2011.
0: Oh, yeah, we won't talk about that today, but. Yeah,
1: so I'll save it for then.
0: 2011 gets in there, but it is very shocking because we'll talk about some of the other mob uh, bosses and people that he interacted with, and a lot of them go in and out of jail for, like, two period, like, two year stints, like, just in and out, like, all the time, and it's funny because obviously you'll see why he doesn't get arrested for a good chunk of that time, but (laughs) yep. Yep. So at the end of his sentence, Whitey returned to Boston where his brother, Billy again, helped him find some odd jobs, but he found he wasn't really making ends meet. He worked out as a janitor and a construction worker for a brief period, but he wasn't making enough money, wanted a better life for himself. So he, uh, decided to start working as a bookmaker and loan shark for the Colleen family. And the Colleen family was a South Boston crime family that consisted of three brothers, Donnie, Eddie, and Kenny, Billy O'Sullivan, and Jack Curran. And those are just, like, the big players that were important during this time, um... The headquarters for this were located in the Transit Cafe in South Boston. But later, eventually, Whitey takes over everything and it's moved to Triple O's.
1: What is that for?
0: Yeah. They're usually, there's like, they went back and forth. So there's multiple different places. A lot of times they're in like, if you watched uh, the movie about the Gardner Museum. Uh Uh-huh. Or the docu series on Netflix, they have they always t- they keep talking about ah uh, different garages that people worked out of, like basically oh, every oh yeah okay every garage around Boston was just like a <laughs> different meeting place. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's ah uh, very interesting. <laughs> so. During this time, Boston's underground crime scene was in the middle of a very brutal war. Um, The Killians were in a feud with the Mullen Gang, which consisted of Michael Mickey Dwyer, Paul McGonagall, and Patrick Patney. Um, Obviously, like I said, these groups each had more people in them, but these are the main players that are big for our whole story. And these two groups had major beef, and this war ended with a bit of bloodshed. The first murder was done by Whitey, and this is thought to be, like, his first, like, official, like, killing. Uh, His target was Paul McGonagall, which I can't help but think of Professor McGonagall when I hear that name. But (laughs) I guess he didn't know the guy's face or something because he ended up killing... Paul's brother Donald instead rookie mistake. Who, like, sad for him because he wasn't even involved in right. the crime family stuff at all. Mm-hmm. So when he realized his mistake, he ran to his mentor in the Colleen family, Billy O'Sullivan, for advice. Billy said, "Quote, don't worry about it. He was he wasn't healthy anyways. He smoked." He would have gotten lung cancer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What the hell? Family love. (laughs) So what should I say? What the (laughs) fuck? Like, yeah, probably, but that doesn't mean you should kill
0: him. (laughs) Yes, you would have gotten lung cancer. Like, what? (laughs) Okay. So, unfortunately for Billy, the Mullins presumably thought that he had killed Donald and in retaliation, murdered him. Whitey started to look for a way out of this mess and got into contact with Howie Winter, who was head of the Winter Hill Gang. We'll talk a little bit more about the Winter Hill Gang. Um, Winter Hill is a place in Somerville, and it is just like a different, like a small section of Somerville. The fact that it's named Winter Hill has nothing to do with how we winter. It's just a coincidence. What? Yeah.
1: That's wild. (laughs) (laughs) Is that destiny?
0: (laughs) Yeah, so at first I was like, huh, I'm confused about this one. And then I asked my mom and she was like, no, they're literally not related at all. I was like, okay, okay, cool, cool. On May 13th, 1972, Donnie Colleen was gunned down at his home in Framingham, Massachusetts pretty sure um he was the one who was killed he went outside to get something during his like son's fourth birthday party and was shot um yeah not chill there was lots of discussion about whether whitey had anything to do it or not but the mullins ended up taking the claim of this one so interesting but it's there's a lot of people who, like, think that Whitey did this so that he could get power over the Killeens. Killeens, it sorry.
1: seem out of the question in any way.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely not out of the realm of possibilities. The feud ended after a discussion in a nightclub in Southie. Bolger represented the Killeen family, and the Mullins were represented by Pat Nee and Tommy King. And this was mediated by Winter and Joseph Russo of the Patriarca Crime Family.
1: I know about them.
0: Oh, yeah. Providence. So, yes. The Patriarca Crime Family is a big Italian mafia, essentially, that had hold over most of New England. Um, good chunks of Boston and Massachusetts, a whole lot of Connecticut and majorly in providence
1: yeah providence was like their headquarters yeah um, um. there is a podcast now i'm not going to be able to remember the name of it i know what you're talking about because it talks about like
0: the corruption in the government in rhode island and all that
1: this might be wrong i want i want to say crimetown that's what i think it was yeah tyler do you remember it's crimetown yeah. Crime count. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah we'll, that whole we'll, we'll season That's... about the
0: Patriarchas in Providence specifically. Oh so, yeah. We won't talk about them a ton, but they had small hold over parts of Boston. And obviously, if you know anything about the underground crime bosses of Boston, the Irish and the Italian famously feuded. Even though the Irish did allow a lot of Italians into their, like, gangs, the Italians were not so nice and did not do that, but I digress. (laughs) So they decided that the Killeens and Mullins would join together and work under winter. Um, Shortly after this, they completely nudged the Killeens out of the business.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that checks out. And I mean, considering there's only one brother left,
0: but... In 1973, Whitey and the Mullins got shaken down a few times and decided to slowly start taking out their enemies. They were able to convince Winter to sanction killings that would take out their opponents. (laughs) Winter is quoted saying that Whitey could teach the devil tricks. Which just reminds me of when I talked about um, the, uh, oh my God, what was it? Not Shady Jack, the Stingy Jack in our. Oh,
1: oh yeah. Forgot about fun. <laughs> yeah.
0: So before we move more into the Winter Hill Gang, I should mention some key players. So the top three that we're going to be talking about are Howie Winter, Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy and Kevin Weeks. Hi, Kitty. (laughs) So Stephen Flemmy, or the rifleman, uh, got his name because he was a sharpshooter and, uh, I guess, got a lot of really great training when he was in the military. Uh, So Flemmy, Winter, and Weeks all come up a whole bunch more throughout the story. But to speak on Whitey's character, here's a fun quote from Weeks. (laughs) Quote, as a criminal, he made a point of only preying upon criminals. And when things couldn't be worked out to his satisfaction with these people, after all other options had been explored, he wouldn't hesitate to use violence. (laughs) Tommy King in 1975 was one example. Tommy's problems began when he and Jimmy worked at Triple O's. Tommy, who wasn't a Mullins, made a fist. And Jimmy saw it. A week later, Tommy was dead. Tommy's second and last mistake had been getting in the car with Jimmy, Stevie, and Johnny, Martirano. Toronto. Later that same night, Jimmy killed Bunny Lettard and left him in Tommy's car on Pilsaski Way in the old colony project to confuse the authorities. End quote. Bullshit. <laughs> so, a lot... A big thing with a lot of these, like big gang guys and especially whitey is they thought that they were like Robin Hoods of their neighborhood they thought that they were like oh like I stole money from this guy but I gave it to this person who needed food and like oh I did this but then I did this for this person and uh, reminds me a lot of like Pablo Escobar yeah so um a really quick fun blurb about racism so in the 1970s there was an effort to desegregate Boston schools which ended up resulting in a program that the school system that I went to actually participated in while I was there and still currently does I believe it's called the Metco program and oh,
1: yeah. I forgot about that. I forgot yeah. about
0: that. I did a whole history fair project on it in high school because I did desegregation in schools uh, with me and my friend Sydney and it was a lovely project, and also, apparently, a lot of Southie and the Irish were very fucking racist back then, and they were very, very against desegregation of schools. Um
1: surprise to me.
0: Yeah, so those of you who don't know, the MECCO program and, like, the busing efforts was what they were called then, was basically when they took kids from inner-city Boston schools and sent them to the suburbs to get better education and diversify schools, which makes sense, but a lot of people had issues with that back in the day. So, in 1974, Whitey and an accomplice set fire to a Wellesley Elementary school bus because of the new mandated desegregation in Boston schools. That's aggressive. Yeah. Like, not for nothing, Wellesley is still No, I don't think there is anybody in the bus. I don't think they would do that. But not for nothing, to this day, Wellesley is still, like, a very white affluent community.
1: Like, it's not... I don't know. (laughs) Whatever. My sister works in Newton, which is right next door. And it's... She works at a country club that's, like, very fancy.
0: Yeah, Newton-Wellesley. It's very, very nice. It's a very nice area. But it is again like right outside the city so on september 8th 1975 whitey and another unknown accomplice threw molotov cocktails at the jfk birthplace historic site why <laughs> because senator teddy kennedy supported
1: desegregation
0: in schools
1: they're being so dramatic. It's literally
0: so petty. And it's just like, why are adults this way sometimes? Like, still to this day, yeah. like grown men act this way.
1: Yeah. Like,
0: grow up. Mm-hmm. They also sprayed, quote, bus teddy on the sidewalk outside of this historic site in black paint. What
1: does that mean?
0: Teddy was supportive of bussing like the desegregation in schools I was like you couldn't come up with like a better
1: something coherent
0: yeah and it's also I forgot to mention this earlier but while Whitey was in prison his whole thing was he was like oh I'm gonna get an education and they didn't have like a ton of books but he did he was like an avid reader when he was in prison so I was like you're not illiterate (laughs) right (laughs) you can probably come up with something better than bus teddy, but whatever. So, moving on from that stupid shit, in <laughs> 1971, the FBI approached Whitey to become an informant against the Patriarca crime family, but he denied. And as we Briefly discussed, the Patriarcha crime family was an Italian crime family that had power over Boston and Providence, Rhode Island, with reach throughout New England and connections in New York and throughout the country. Pretty sure they are also still active today, but that is none of my business. <laughs> that's
1: my stance on that. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, that's all we have to say about that. I don't want
0: any of issues. Um <laughs> Three years after the FBI first approached Whitey, he agreed to become an informant. The agent that was finally able to convince him was Agent John Connolly. He was a bit younger than Whitey, but he grew up in the same neighborhood as him. And also, one of Whitey's most trusted partners, Flemmy, had also been working with the FBI, apparently, since
1: 1965. I can't help but laugh at the name Flemmy. I know. <laughs>
0: well, Blum is also. Super, it is, and he's also super Italian, which um helps with later things with the Italian. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but also there's a story of, I guess at one point, Whitey comes into an ice cream shop and there's a bunch of kids in there and is like. Who of you guys wants ice cream? And buys them all ice cream. And one of the kids was John Conley. And he's in this ice cream shop going, I'm not supposed to take anything from strangers. And that was when Whitey looked at them and said, Your family's from Ireland. My family's from Ireland. That makes us related. Or something like that makes, like, we're both Irish. That makes us brothers.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> I guess that.
0: Yeah, like, mm, very, very. Not correct, but okay. Like, it's whatever. You got your Irish brotherhood there. But apparently that left a good impact on John Conley, and Whitey did remember him, and also the growing up in the same neighborhoods thing voted well. Also, it is kind of important to note that throughout a lot of this, Whitey didn't see himself as a rat for using the FBI, He thought of himself as, like, strategic and was, like, using them mostly. In 1979, Winter and other members of the Winter Hill Gang were arrested for um, fixing a bunch of horse races after one of the jockeys came forward and, like, started working with the FBI. Because they would basically pay these guys, like, a few thousand dollars, a few hundred bucks to throw a race. And then, like, they'd make bank off of it, obviously. So there's a lot of, like, illegal betting and gambling, stupid shit. On top of, like, the killing. But, um... (laughs) (laughs) So a whole bunch of these Winter Hill gang members were arrested for fixing horse races, but Whitey and Flemmy had been excluded from the list. Whitey and Flemmy were protected by FBI agent Conley... And had them both listed as unindicted co-conspirators under this, like, arrest charge. Which, surprisingly, nobody in the Winter Hill gang, like, thought anything of this. They're like, oh, weird. I guess they just didn't catch them somehow. But the rest of us are arrested. (laughs) So... The two of them took over what was left of the Winter Hill Gang and used their informant statuses to take out their competition. The info they supplied to the FBI was tailored to imprison associates as they saw, f- that they saw as threats, but mostly the Patriarch of Family. In a 2011 interview, Flemmy said, quote, me and Whitey gave them shit and they gave us gold. yeah <laughs> they really were just like oh yeah this person did this crime type of situation like set up any of their enemies and we're like oh yeah ha, ha, ha.
1: that seems like a very
0: risky game to play oh yeah but i mean they knew that they were
1: fully protected so yep guess you gotta do what you gotta do not so, really but <laughs> we're not condoning this no
0: in 1986, RICO charges were brought down on the on Angiulo and the Patriarca family. Angiulo was one of the guys that was heading up the Patriarca family at the time, which left Whitey and Flemy to take over what was left of organized crime in Boston. Cool and, yeah, they basically just became heads of absolutely everything after this. Um, the Basically FBI was
1: able of all of Southie.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, so they headed up all of Southie, and then earlier before that, when in well, this they were probably out of jail by then. But when Winter and the rest of Winter Hill Gang went to jail for a bit, they would take over Winter Hill Gang fully and also have control over everything in Southie. And so then they would just like bebop around to what they had full control over. Classic. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so the FBI was able to bring down these charges on the Patriarca family because information from Whitey and Flemmy. They told them where the Mafia's headquarters were on Prince Street in the North End, which Prince Street is one of, like, the famous food streets
1: mm-hmm. in the
0: North End, if you've ever been there. Um,
1: <laughs> Yum.
0: And they helped them to plant bugs in their headquarters. Or decide where to put the bugs. So, since they needed information to legally be able to place bugs, the Mafia's lawyers were able to dig into this and find out the FBI informant status. This would result in a 1988 leak of their FBI informant status by the Boston Globe and explain how Whitey was able to get away with so much for so long without getting caught. I know
1: that when they, like, bug building, it's, like, cameras and recorders and stuff, but I like to think that they were just bringing boxes of bugs. <laughs> box I like to
0: think, you know those, <laughs> uh, like, little vibrating bug toys that were wicked popular for a while? I like to think it's just yeah. those, like, buzzing around the floor, like, <laughs> recording
1: noises. i <laughs> um, Picturing just like boxes and boxes of mosquitoes. <laughs> <into> <laughs> <the> <laughs> buildings. The fuck, just like swatting. They're like, what the. Yeah, enough to be annoying. I think that that
0: would be really great at reducing crime. I think that,
1: that would be effect.
0: effective.
1: <laughs> you never know. I know.
0: Okay. So now we will be discussing a few of the murders.
1: Dun, dun,
0: dun. Yeah. And then that will be it for this episode, and we'll move on to the rest for next time. So, in 1980, there was a Lebanese American book namer named Louis Litif.
1: A book namer? Bookmaker. Oh.
0: Named Louis Litif, working under Whitey in Winter Hill. According to Weeks, He had an obnoxious loud voice. Lysif was apparently stealing money from his bookmaking partners and using the money to traffic cocaine, refusing and refused to pay Whitey his cut. Because another really fun thing that we'll talk about next week is the fact that one of Whitey's sources of income was he took a cut out of every single drug dealers' money. This obviously pissed Whitey off, but not as much as coming to uh, committing two unsanctioned murders, as well as telling Whitey that he wanted to kill Joe, the barber, for re- allegedly stealing from him. Whitey told him no, saying, quote, you've stepped over the line. You're no longer just a bookmaker, end quote. To this, Louis told him, not to worry about it, because they were friends. she's just really ballsy, yeah, and Whitey responded, "We're not friends anymore, Louie, oh fuck, yeah, at that point, you should probably flee the country because you know you're gonna die, but <laughs> whatever, Raj. Apparently Weeks' wedding was coming up soon, and he was talking to Whitey about how he couldn't find Louie a seat at his wedding. Whitey told him not to worry. Quote, he probably won't show.
1: That's not cryptic at all.
0: Yes. When later talking about this, Weeks said, quote, Louie had always been a major moneymaker for Jimmy, and now he wanted to kill a friend of Jimmy. There was no way that would be allowed. Shortly after all that, a week or so before my wedding, Louie was found stuffed into a garbage bag in the trunk of his car, which had been dumped in the South End. He had been stabbed with an ice pick and shot. Quote, he was color-coordinated, Jimmy told me. Quote, he was wearing green underwear, and he was in a green garbage bag. End
1: quote. (laughs) I don't like that. No.
0: So, yeah. (laughs) And the final murders for today's episode that we will be talking about also occurred in the early 80s. So, cocaine dealer Edward Balloonhead (laughs) Halloran.
1: Beautiful. (laughs) That might be the best nickname we've had so far.
0: Yeah, like, I don't discuss too many of them, but... Balloonhead's definitely up there for one of my favorites. There's also one that was like, Ponytail Tony or something. I love that. There's so many good ones. Like, oh. All right. So, thank you, Kat. So, Balloonhead had witnessed the murder of Louis Litiff, and wanted went to the FBI. He was hoping of bringing up a past murder of of Roger Wheeler in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that he had been involved with. Um, that Whitey was also involved with. Uh, he hoped to bring that up and to be able to get placed in witness protection. He knew that being a witness to Letiff's murder would likely put him on a list, but didn't know that going to the FBI would be more likely to get him killed. Mm-hmm. A few weeks later, Whitey, Fleming, and Weeks were tipped off by the FBI that Halloran had returned to Boston. Weeks stalked the restaurant he was eating at one night, while... Out to eat, Holleran ran into an old friend, Michael Donahue, who offered him a ride home. When the pair left, Weeks signaled, "'Balloon is in the air.'" <laughs> Whitey and another man drove up in disguises with a silenced Mac 10 and Bulger with a 30 carbine. They opened fire on the car. Donahue was shot in the head and killed instantly, but Holleran lived long enough to say, that the man who shot him was James Flynn. James Flynn was later tried and acquitted in 1999. And in 1999, when Weeks started to cooperate with law enforcement, he named Whitey as one of the shooters. Later, Flemmy would ID the second shooter as Patrick Knee, who would deny allegations and ended up never being charged. So.
1: Classic.
0: I think the only one who ended up going down for it is Whitey eventually. Kind of, maybe. Who knows?
1: Eventually.
0: (laughs) Both families ended up filing civil suits against the US government after finding out that Connolly had informed them of Halloran's location. Because, yes, Connolly does get in the deep, deep shit for this later. Um, Yes. The courts awarded both families several million dollars, but the ruling ended up getting overturned, and they got nothing due to late filing.
1: That's bullshit. Yeah. Late filing my ass. What the
0: fuck, guys? So, one of the sons of Michael Donahue, Thomas, who was only eight at the time of his father's murder... Now works as a spokesperson for families of those who were killed by the Winter Hill Gang and associates.
1: Oh, yeah. Thanks. So that
0: is all I have for you for today, because there's still so much more. This is not the thing I wanted to open. Um. But, sorry, having technical difficulties opening something. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, there's a whole lot more. We're going to talk about more of his crimes, more people getting killed, a little bit more about John Connolly. We're going to talk about the manhunt and Whitey's life on the run. And then, depending on how much information there is the trial might just have to be a whole third episode (laughs) but it'll be fun I promise
1: yes I'm excited great job on our first section I'm intrigued already it's one of those episodes where like I know stuff but there's a lot of gaps in what I know (laughs) that makes sense yeah
0: and there's so much information out there that it's hard to include at all because there's so many little stories about, like, oh, yeah, like, I met him one time and he was so nice. So, like, I met him and then I died. Um, There's just so many varying reports. And also, like I just mentioned, there was a murder in Tulsa, Oklahoma that's connected to Whitey. Like, there's things all over the place that just, like, oh, we can make money if we go, uh, like, kill this dude because we're slightly involved in this and we'll just get more money from that.
1: It's like, yeah. I don't know. I'm not, organized crime is not usually one of my interests as far as true crime goes, but this story always has felt a little close to home, so it's interesting.
0: Yes, it hits very ho- close to home. Um, it... It's very interesting, and it's also like a lot of times people don't want to word it as like this was bad. There was a ton of gang violence. A lot of times people are like, oh yeah, like Winter Hill gang was, and all of the like gangs in Boston were just like bookmaking. A lot of just like horse race fixing. There's something about like vending machines scams and pinball machine scams and like different restaurants and bars like. Okay. <laughs> that's just petty money they weren't actually making any money off of that we all know right. they were involved with drug dealers and right. like, trafficking of goods and things like and murder, it's not, murder yeah it's not as innocent as some would like to make it seem right yeah organized crime has the potential to be
1: incredibly
0: violent oh yeah and it was um I didn't mention it earlier, but before Whitey became involved with Winter Hill or like right as he started to get involved with Winter Hill, they were also in the middle of a massive gang war with a gang from Brookline, not Brookline, from Charlestown, and it got massively bloody. There was lots of like car bombs going back and forth and
1: wow, yeah, not a I good time. I never realized that Winter Hill gang existed pre-Whitey.
0: Mm -hmm. that's
1: something I learned today yeah
0: yeah they existed pre-Whitey and even post-Whitey for a little while yeah but that is all and
1: uh as usual stay tuned next Monday and every Monday for new episodes
0: you can find us on Apple Podcasts Spotify and wherever you are currently listening
1: we're on Instagram at Monday mondaymorningspod, on Twitter at Monday Mornings P, and we have a Facebook page, but we don't use it, so don't
0: bother. No. <laughs> if you have questions or topics that you'd like to have covered in a future episode, you can also email us at mondaymorningspod at
1: com. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. And, you know, as always...
0: Start your Monday mornings the right way with Maddie and Morgan and murder.
1: <laughs> and murder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodbye. Bye.